Chapter 14 India I went to India and back for the next once-in-a-lifetime trip, following Jesus wherever He leads. While doing the work I've been equipped to do, God is constantly at work in me. He is faithful through me to others and to me. The wonderful Indian couple who had become my friends in Dallas greeted me at the airport with roses. God gave me such a gift in them and their care for me during our service to the Lord. Reverend Dr. Christopher David and his wife, Hepsi, had hosted many ministry partners over the years through their work with the Billy Graham Association in India. Hepsi always walked a step ahead of me as she took care of me. She let me know what to put on my plate in the buffet line during our training events. Eat this, not this. This is goat. Do you like goat? Uh, nope. Okay, don't eat this. They took me to a lovely Indian department store to give me a gift of traditional Indian clothing for our visit to church on Sunday. She picked out a teal and purple ensemble for me that I proudly wore. She was a blessed mother, sister, and friend to me. My faith grew because of their love and care. God was everywhere. They asked me to speak for a few minutes at their church on Sunday to explain one of the resources from our ministry that would be provided by their church to their small group leaders. Sure, I said. I did not know as I casually said sure that there were 3,000 members at their church on Sunday mornings. Did I say yes? I meant nope. Okay, yes. I prayed. I reminded God that he was supposed to do through me what he was asking me to do. He did. When I got quiet with him and in his word, he led me. He gives me the words to clearly inform and respond every time. Not that it goes smoothly every time. Not that sometimes I am not distracted, insecure, and tired. But he is faithful to those he stands me before and to do what he promised through me in bringing us together. Our time in India coincided with a holiday there that was celebrated by fireworks shot from the rooftops at midnight. I didn't know that was going to happen. When the clock struck 12 and the fireworks launched, I shot up out of my hotel bed as I heard them begin exploding and thought, well, this is it. This is where I die. The gunmen sound close. As I began to consider my escape options, I went to take a slight peek behind the curtain of my upper story window, being careful so whoever was shooting wouldn't be able to see me. I saw that it was not gunmen filling the streets, but rather fireworks filling the sky across the rooftops. It was literally amazing. Why do I get to be here, God? Why isn't someone else getting to see all of this, like someone who really knows what they are doing, someone with courage, someone with a full quiver, or who looks like they should? Why me? With peace that passed understanding and bone-deep gratefulness, I watched the fireworks show through tears. I was beginning to fall in love with the sky that God was giving me. I long for land, but I am amazed by this sky. One time I was in India and watched fireworks light up the nighttime sky over the city rooftops as far as the eye could see. Only God. My host dropped me off at the airport, and I was growing anxious about the long two days of travel home. I was probably still a little overwhelmed by all that God had done during my time there. The veil was torn between me and my fears. 
but still, I was feeling a little extra alone as I stepped into the airport in the middle of India with a sea of unrecognizable faces. I bought a magnet and some chocolate and went to find my gate. As I walked toward the seats in the gate waiting area, I saw a red hat with familiar words in all caps and bright white stitching. Sooners. I literally yelled across the floor, I'm from Oklahoma! Startled, the man under the hat and his friends stood up to greet me as neither hell nor high water would have kept me from getting to their side. The hat was on the head of a pastor who had been with one of his deacons on mission in India for a couple of weeks. They were from Garland, Texas. No joke. His son was a student at the University of Oklahoma, home of the Sooners. They were beautiful to me. They were on each of my flights all the way home. I'm sure I went into way too much detail of what I was doing there, but after my story, the pastor said words I will never forget. Well, sis, you're with us now. And I was. Never were truer words spoken, like white on rice, all the way home. They could have been on any flight. He could have worn any hat. But they were on my flight, and he wore that hat. I see you, God. India. Check. Again, I thought that would be the last of it. You guys, I have my share of incorrect assumptions. It is a good thing to begin seeing the fruit of change and the purpose of what God has been doing in our lives, but it can be a little destabilizing. He was leading me to do things that I had specifically prayed against and had honestly thought were not even possible. Is it even okay for me to go to India by myself and speak in church? Is it even okay for me to teach men and women? All of this was feeling pretty drastic and a bit traumatic. There's a passage in scripture that comes to mind, Luke 13. I'm going to share the King James Version because it sounds fancy. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bowed together and could in no wise lift herself up. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Luke thirteen ten through 13 I can relate. I have been emotionally bowed over and unable to lift myself up many times. Fear, insecurity, incorrect assumptions, and wrong beliefs have kept me bound. I have been knotted up in regards to who I was, how ministry in my life and through my life should look. But God, in Fort Worth, in Israel, in Ethiopia, and in India, was pouring oil on those knots, and I was coming loose. I actually never wanted to be loosed. My comfort zone was in those knots that kept me on the ground in Oklahoma and in good standing with cultural norms. Riding helped me think through my wrong beliefs. Where did they begin? What was God showing me now? I wrote the following blog post about a month and a half after returning home from what I thought was the far edge of the world. Not to jump ahead, but I've gone way past that edge now. Wait, what? January 5th, 2013. When I was in junior high and high school, our youth group attended a youth evangelism conference in Oklahoma every year. I don't know if it still is, but back then it was held right after Christmas. 
One year it was in Dell City, one year more, I think. I have a lot of great memories with my youth group, worshiping and playing with them. There are a few highlights that stand out from those years in no particular order. Dawson McAllister ate goldfish on stage one time. One of those churches literally had a little river running through it down by the stage. That seemed pretty cool. My high school boyfriend and I both cried as I walked with him when he decided to receive Jesus as his Savior. That was certainly a highlight. But it was after my first year attending that I went home truly believing God was going to kill me. Soon. Here is why. A preacher standing on the other side of that little river delivered a passionate sermon talking about our assurance of going to heaven and asking us to think about who in our lives did we know was not saved and would be spending an eternity in H-E double hockey sticks. Were we just going to let that happen? What would we be willing to do for them? Would we give our life like Jesus did or would we stand by and do nothing? I took him literally and did some deductions. I know I'm saved. I know Grandpa Corky is not. I'm here for a reason. This must be it. Go time. A good friend of mine was also unsure about a family member. We cried, not wanting them to go to hell. We stood up and walked down front to give our lives for theirs. There were a lot of other kids going down front. I bet some of them were confused too. I didn't know how God would kill me, but I was certain that when I died, Pa would be so sad and accept Jesus as his Savior. I remember wondering if it would be in a car wreck. It seemed most likely. I wasn't sick and it wasn't tornado season, the only other two causes of death in northern Oklahoma. As a week or so wore on, I grew more anxious, waiting for the moment until I ended up in bed crying my eyes out. My mom, having sensed something was off, came in to make me tell her what in the world was going on. I let her in on my impending death, but told her not to fear. Pa would be saved. I don't remember exactly what she said, but in no uncertain terms, and with her, I'm going to whip somebody's B-U-T-T voice, she reminded me that Jesus had already died for Pa, and he didn't need me to. She seemed pretty emphatic about that, and I'm not sure she didn't make a phone call or two to make sure others were on the same page. I had focused on the wrong point of the sermon, or maybe he had stressed the wrong point of the sermon. I had focused on the surrender of my life instead of rejoicing in the surrender of Christ's life that I could share with Pa, tell the good news, not be the sad story that serves as a warning to others. One focus leads to unnecessary despair, the other to truth and assurance. The thing is, sometimes God does take the sad stories and turn them into good. Many times that is when we truly seek Him. In the moments of tragedy beyond our understanding, we seek a higher understanding. Tragedy is a result of a broken world where cancer, car wrecks, and mad people exist. But it's not the sad story that saves. It's realizing we need to be saved and accepting the gift of salvation that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ offers. Although many have died to share the good news of salvation, only one needed to die for the plan of salvation. 
the preacher was passionately calling us to share the gospel, not be the gospel. The gospel already is. The gospel is Jesus. I don't know if that unfortunate misunderstanding at the conference is where my wrong belief started. That surrendering to God is going to be dreadful and the opposite of anything I ever wanted, or if that was already in me. Some people run to give their lives to God. I have been patiently, graciously, and thankfully dragged here. I'm not proud of that, but that's the truth. I wish I gave in more easily, as easy as it was in my youth. But I spent time turned from him. Now I have to fight for him in me. But that struggle, according to Romans 5, 3-5, produces perseverance, character, and hope and a lot of peace that I didn't have fighting for other things. If I'm going to fight for something, I want it to be for the hope of mankind. And I believe Jesus is our hope. It pains me to think of the times I denied him or made little of him, and then to think how he doesn't think of those times. As I work out my salvation, each new surrender to his will over my fear selfishness, doubt, etc., is often followed by a wince, followed usually by tears, followed by a leap, followed by increased faith, followed by renewal of my spirit, followed by transformation in my life, followed by laughter at the silliness of the wince and tears, followed by thankfulness, followed by testimony, which you are reading now. Sometimes I'm wrapped up in the lie that God's will for me isn't what I want, like moving me to Texas or taking me to India. But He is our Creator. What He created for me is what every fiber of my being wants, even when I don't know what that is, or even when my eyes, my heart, my society, and my flesh argue against it based on my own limited understanding. I can focus on what I can see with my eyes and try to make happen what seems normal to me, but that will not lead to fulfillment of my life. Only the Creator can know the purpose of the created, and He wants us to know the steps to take and will show us in His timing when we ask. The Creator gave us the ability to choose. This is seen throughout the Bible, which is filled with examples of people who said, okay, yes, your will be done, or you know what? I'm out. I'm going to do something different that makes sense to me or that feels good. Doing something different may feel right in our youth, in our flesh, in our country. Both paths lead through trials, joys, relationships, jobs, conversations, achievements. But each path, although they end the same way, has a very different outcome and very different lasting impacts on the generations that come after us. We are never too far down one path that we can't pick the other up, and unfortunately, we are never too far down one path that we can't be tempted by the other. That is life. We can look for God or we can ignore Him. We can grow our faith in Him or we can grow in denial of Him. We say yes or no based on what we believe about Him, and what we believe about Him depends on who we are listening to. Case in point. In the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, Eve believed the lie that by doing what God wanted her to do, she would be missing out. 
She could choose to obey, not eat the fruit, and be an obedient sucker, according to the snake. Or she could take the fruit by the horns and get out of life what she believed would be more than what God was offering. Eat up and ride out, Eve. What does God know about you? Does he even care? Are you being a fool by not partaking? Is he even trustworthy? Those words are not in scripture. I'm just fleshing out a bit what the temptation looked like in my mind and how that temptation sounds when the snake says it to me. It would have been okay for Eve to run to God, whom she walked with and fellowshiped with and knew personally, and say, God, I'm being tempted to eat the fruit by a snake I just met. He says you are holding out on me. Is that true? What in the world is going on? But Eve chose to act on her questions instead of ask them. She didn't even say, hey, snake, meet me back here in a week. I'm going to think about it. She acted on the deception instead of acting on what she had known to be the truth, that God is good. Action is what got her into trouble, and she got what she asked for. She had knowledge of good and evil, stepping out from the shelter of one and exposing herself to the other. And since knowledge can't be undone, we are all paying the consequences and acting just like her. Acting on temptation is much easier than asking questions. It's mindless. We don't have to think about it. We just do. It doesn't take perseverance or character. It's just satisfaction in the moment. We just bite the fruit because we hear someone tell us we are being manipulated without considering that those words are falling out of a mouth determined to kill us. For Eve, paradise was lost because of believing the true manipulator. What have you lost? I know I've lost way more than I should have. Is God good? A few weeks ago, a sermon at church from a pastor who loves the Lord and his congregation hit me between the eyes with the most memorized verses in the book, Psalm 23. I believe God is good, but oftentimes the worry in my life would say the opposite, that I don't believe that. Psalm 23 tells us that Jesus is a good shepherd, not a jerk one, not a manipulative one, not a tricky one, not a mean one. God is a good father, not a jerk one, not a manipulative one, not a tricky one, not a mean one. I don't have to plead for God's goodness. I don't have to earn his love. I don't have to perform at his whim. He doesn't plot the demise of my spirit for his purposes to rule the world while squashing me. As one of his, through Jesus, he doesn't look at me with condemnation. He looks at me with compassion. He doesn't lead me to slaughter just so he can control me, then tend my wounds so I will love him. The slaughter has already happened in the garden and on the cross. My wounds are already inflicted from my own sin. He tends to them out of his love and mercy, not conspiracy or political agenda. He is love, and I want to reciprocate and share his love. The Good Shepherd gives us our fill, not always our whims. He leads us to lie down in green pastures beside still waters. He restores the brokenness of our soul and leads us down paths of righteousness for his name's sake so others may know him. He doesn't snap and make a barren pasture green for us so we will feel better about the pasture we are in. He leads us through the valleys we have gotten ourselves into or others have put us in 
so that we heal, grow in faith and trust and peace, have no other guides before him. His plan is for us to live our purpose in true green pastures, true still waters that stay still even when stirred up. Don't be deceived. Live in the reality of hope and peace, not in a manipulation of your perception of reality. He is living water, water that can't be bought or earned. It can only be accepted as a gift from the one who leads us to it. But we have to follow. We do need to make our choice. The true hymn, not the one conjured in our minds, but the hymn we once knew for those of us who used to be Christians or used to go to church. Was it him that let you down? Or did you get deceived or let down by someone else? God doesn't control us like robots. Whoever pushed you away from him did that on their own, and he is calling you back. He called me back. It's important to remember that God is not glorified by our sorrow. He is glorified by our joy. If you left him, start to turn back now. You know where he is. If you don't know him, have a conversation with someone you know who does. I hope we all have a grandma, an uncle, a neighbor, a friend who has tried to talk about Jesus with us. Ask your questions. Don't just stew in them. My Grandpa Corky did accept Christ as his Savior several years after the conference. The Lord had put him on many hearts, not just mine, and he answered our prayers one Christmas Eve many years ago. Pa had finally come to the end of his doubts and accepted the gift of salvation through Jesus. He had a changed life even in the few number of years he had left to live it. Gracefully, Frank. I was obviously having all the feels over what God was showing me and growing in me. My heart always longs for those friends and loved ones who walked away or lost faith or opted out of a relationship with Christ like I once did. Why did we? What were we believing about ourselves or others? Thinking through my wrong beliefs and misunderstandings hopefully gives me an understanding and a compassion for them. I pray that my ability to relate with those friends will open a window for them to relate to a renewed relationship with Jesus. What's your story? Has God provided support and encouragement to you in surprising and miraculous ways? What made you either believe it was Him or explain it away as a coincidence? Do you think you have been debilitated in some areas of your life? Has there been death, divorce, fear, or wrong beliefs? Have you ever taken the time to reflect on what developed your current view of God? Who did you listen to? What circumstances set you off on your course of belief? Are those things, people, still true or influencing you today? Take a moment to think how your beliefs about him developed and consider if you may need to do a bit of personal investigation. <music>